gentlemen. Welcome again to another episode of The Sample Hour. I'm very honored, as usual, and it is always a pleasure to have um, Blogger. Um, he is the owner of OfTwoMinds.com and the blog. And if you haven't subscribed yet after all the episodes we have, you're really missing out. You really should subscribe. Um, he's he's written multiple books, which are also just filled with wisdom. Uh, he is a renaissance man. Um Check out his website. You can you can see everything Charles is Charles is interested in. It's it's pretty awesome, uh, Mr. Charles Hugh Smith, sir. How are you doing today? Uh, pretty good, Drew. But after that um, glowing introduction, I have to say I'm very much a, a, a mere mortal. Have, <laughs> have have suffered a lot of defeats <laughs> and failures, <laughs> and um, you know, uh, often discouraged. You know, because that's what happens when you take risks. You know. But that's how we, you know, with no risk, no gain. So yeah, no learning, right? No, if you don't make failures, yeah. it's harder to learn. That's for sure. Um, but uh, one one of the things, you know, something I wanted to talk to you about today. You've been recently, you've been writing quite a bit about uh, uh, oil prices changing. Um, so U.S. is now the number one producer of oil. So the dollar has adjusted. Our gas, it's cheaper for us to go fill up our gas tanks. Uh, it's cheaper for our dollar holds up a lot more in Europe. Now, if you want to travel to Europe, the, the exchange rate, or if you want to travel out of the country, the exchange rate is really good. However, just because something is good for us, typically it means it's worse for everybody else. But, um, you know, something that we, we were talking about before we started recording is, you know, just the idea of money and the idea of currency, and maybe we should open up this wormhole and try not to get lost and, we can we I can ask you some questions and we can kind of go into some different ideas. So how does that sound, sir? Sounds great. It's a it's it's a complicated subject which I don't claim to you know have a, a complete handle on, but um, it it's it's worth exploring because it does have an impact on all of us. Yeah, and it, it definitely does. And and I remember you know back in two thousand seven when I was first introduced to to what quantitative easing and fractional reserve banking were, it kind of blew my mind because I was, you know, in school, you're not taught that stuff. I go to, and then uh, I learned that, you know, we weren't backed by gold. And at first I was really angry by that for some strange reason. And, uh, and, and then I, and then I actually really kind of learned what currency is and currency is, it's something you said is just a commodity in reality. And, uh, and so you know, to kind of go through that, so so something that, just for listeners, if you don't know, uh, you know, the reason why our dollar is called a petrodollar is because it has a, an asymmetrical relationship. Is it, is it or an inverse relationship? I don't, there's probably a better way to explain it than how I'm doing it. But if the, if the price of oil goes up, the price of the dollar goes, or the worth of the dollar goes down. If the price of oil comes down, the worth of the dollar goes up. Um and so, Charles, do you want to expand on that a little bit and try to kind of explain why that is? Um, if you, <laughs> sorry, that's kind of a complicated thing to throw at you there, Charles. <laughs> well, yeah, let's let's talk about the different um, influences, if you want, on the dollar, and um, we can start with like oil, and and it's called a petrodollar for um, a couple of reasons. One is that in general, oil which is, as we know, the lifeblood of industrial society, you know, civilization, is priced in, in U.S. dollars. And, um, some, you know, it, on the margins of the, of the global oil market, yeah, like maybe um, some countries have, have cut deals where somebody can buy Iranian oil with um, euros and, you know, other currencies are, are, of course, used for oil. But in general, most of the oil is traded in dollars. And so it's called the petrodollar because it's like if you want to go buy um, a massive amount of oil contracts, you're going to have to be using dollars. And so currency is a funny thing because it, it has um, a lot of different values, you know, like it has at least two, two values. One is just as a transactional thing, like, you know, you got to have enough of it f floating around the world if you want to use it to go buy stuff. Um, and the U.S. dollar um, and oil is an example of how um, the dollar is the ultimate, at this point in time, trading currency. In other words, like if you want to go to like um, some remote village in Laos 
and you have a $20 bill or a $100 bill, you're, you're going to be able to buy whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, and that, that just is recounted around the world. There's enough U.S. dollars, the actual bills and, and also electronically to like transact anything. And so that's not the same for like the Chinese renminbi, also called the yuan or the Japanese yen or, you know, you, you have that cash, nobody cares unless you happen to be in that country, China or, or, or Japan, you know, like it's just not a global currency. So, um, the, but then a currency also has this sort of reserve value. In other words, like people go, okay, um, I'm going to prefer a Japanese yen note, you know, or a Chinese renminbi note over um, like a Venezuelan peso because, um, you know, everybody knows China and Japan and those are big economies and, and this is going to hold its value more than some other currency. So that's the other kind of reason why people have a demand for dollars or a yen or whatever currency or why they have a desire to dump it, you know, like to sell it for something else, you know. And so those two kind of uses for money, they, they, they create like different dynamics, right? And so that's why um, when we talk about petrodollars, the dollar is like this transactional currency if for no other reason, because it it's dominates the oil market, you know? And so kind of like the, 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 the dynamic you were describing is, let's say we need to go buy 10 million um, barrels of oil. Well, we first have to get dollars in order to buy the oil, right? Because that's what, that's what you need to buy oil with is U.S. dollars. So there's a big demand for that. Now, if there's an oversupply of, of um, oil, then, we, then the, the demand for dollars declines too. So that's like uh, one of the factors that goes into pricing, you know, U.S. dollars particularly is like the demand flux in, if for, for dollars to buy oil with, right? And then the other factor is that um, all these uh, exporting nations, uh, typically, you know, most of them are in the Mideast, but um, that also includes, you know, Mexico and Venezuela, Indonesia, um, they get dollars for their oil in general, right? So they, they, they have these huge piles of, of dollars when, when um, oil is, is, is very pricey, like 100 bucks a barrel or, or up. They're like awash in, in all this surplus dollars. So that's why the dollar, you know, um, is affected. The value, the demand or supply of dollars is affected by the price of oil. So uh, you know, the, the relationship between oil and dollars is, is dynamic. You know, it can, it, there's a lot of flux going on there. Um, but, uh, so right now with, with oil having fallen, you know, basically in half, then those exporting nations are getting a lot fewer dollars than they were a year ago. So right? they're selling the same amount of oil, but they're getting half the number of dollars. And and what countries have really been affected the most by this? Like by with with the drop. So what what countries' economies are really going to probably suffer the most from from the drop in cost of oil? Right. Um, well, certainly any country that depends heavily on oil for its national income is just taking a massive hit. And and the poster child is Venezuela, which is um, sort of screwed up their the rest of their non-oil economy. Um, and so basically they live off of their oil exports. And so they're getting half the money that they were a year ago. So that is really crushing the Venezuelan economy, along with some other mistakes they've made about their economic policy. And so even countries like Saudi Arabia, that seems to be, um, you know, behind the, the, the collapse in oil, they're getting a lot less money. So they're, they're having to draw upon their savings, if you will to fund their um, social welfare programs and stuff like that. So any, all, any and all countries that depend on oil exports have gotten killed by this. So Russia, which uh, yeah. Russia is definitely one. And then surprising, I think, for a lot of people is Canada. So Canada's kind of like I've noticed, uh, you know, the Canadian dollar when I first went there in, I think that was in November, I think it was, it, it was a dollar ten to the US dollar I'm pretty sure that I know it was more than the US dollar it was on the it was kind of on the fall I remember at one point it was about a dollar 20 to the dollar um, and now it's 80 cents 
Canadian. All right, now it's 80 cents US dollar to a Canadian dollar. So it's 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 been pretty interesting, I know, just because I personally go to Canada. And uh, what I was kind of surprised was that I didn't even need to exchange money if I didn't want to. There was a lot of places that were like, yeah, we'll take US dollars. That's fine. And so uh, it, it's... It's it's been a pretty interesting thing for me, and and you know, and and now in my head, there's all these like what ifs. So you know, I like to travel, and I was looking at the cost of the euro. And recently, if 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 anybody hasn't checked out what's going on in Greece, Charles has definitely uh, within the past couple of weeks, he's got a lot of good essay posts, and within those blog posts or previous posts that he wrote a couple of years ago, that still apply today. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's some really interesting things, you know, when you look at the Eurozone, what's going on there, you know, there's, there's a couple countries, you know, if, if Greece drops out, I, I bet Spain is the next to drop out because those two countries are, have been struggling. Um, and, uh, and I think it's just kind of interesting. So, I mean, like for Americans, you know, we, we always get excited when, when the dollar costs more because it's cheaper for us to go do stuff, but then a whole bunch of other people suffer at the same extent. So uh, it's it's kind of interesting. Like it's it's uh, you know. So what? So in the future, though, I mean, you know, you've you've written a little bit about Greece and them dropping the euro. So do you think in, in, you had a really interesting article about them possibly going with the U.S. dollar? Like how? So what are the chances? Do you think that's going to happen? I know it's a possibility, but do you think it's getting closer to that? Well, Drew, it's it's. Uh, I kind of threw that out that idea out there, uh, kind of just to stimulate people's thinking, you know, that's kind of like a, a lot of what I do is just, um, Hey, let's take another look at this, you know, yeah. like try, try to look at it from a little different angle instead of just take the, whatever the conventional assumptions are and, and go with them. And, um, so what fascinates me about currencies is, um, how, how we get it wrong so often, you know, yeah. um, and, 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 you know, we think like we should be able to understand it because, um, the sort of basic idea is if somebody prints a bunch of their money, right. Or, or creates a credit, you know, in their money, which is like the same thing as, as printing money, then, uh, without creating, um, an equivalent amount of new goods and services, you know, like the, the, the actual production of that country stays the same, but they've just, you know, created a whole bunch more money. Well, obviously that should impact their, their, their money. It should lose value, right? Because you've, there's more money and it's the same amount of goods and services. And so that's what we call, you know, inflation. And, it, and when, when that gets uh, really running away, we call it hyperinflation, right? When governments are printing, you know, trillion dollar bills and stuff. <laughs> um, you just keep adding zeros to the money, but you haven't created any more goods and services. And so, and so that kind of, th that's, that makes sense to us, right? We, we can un intuitively understand the impact of money supply on the value of the money. But that led a lot of people in, in, you know, like in the last say five years of quantitative easing, they looked at the federal reserve, basically printing or creating about three and a half trillion dollars, and they said, "Gosh, this is this is slam dunk. The U.S. dollar is going to crater. It's going to be destroyed because look at all this money that's being printed. You know, even though the economy is stagnant. But um, what threw everybody off, I think, and I I feel like I'm a fish, you know, swimming upstream here because I've I've you know for the last four years I've been saying the dollar is going to strengthen, dollar is going to strengthen, you know, and it's all." Um, and that, that threw a lot of people off, like, well, how can the dollar strengthen with all this money printing? And so my, um, my answer was, well, look at the size of the U.S. economy and the size of the global economy and then look at the Fed printing, you know. That's number one, like the scale, you know. So if some small country like Greece, which their economy is about $240 billion, like less than half of L.A. County. That's, if they that's went out insane, and printed, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty small. If they went out and printed, you know, a trillion uh, drachma or something, well, they're going to get hyperinflation because, you know, their economy is really small. But the U.S. economy is 17 trillion. And so 3 trillion, eh, you know, it's, it's a chunk, but it's not that, that imposing. And then the global economy is, I don't know, 60 to 70 trillion uh, GDP every year. So $3 trillion thrown into the global economy, it does, it did have an impact. It, it made, um, it made borrowing in dollars a, a lot easier for the, for, um, developing world, um, 
nations, you know. So, um, and that actually has triggered a lot of problems for them because it was really cheap and easy to borrow um, money in, in dollars and then go build stuff in, 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 in their, their uh, developing world nation. Well, now those loans are coming due, and, but the Fed's not printing any more money. And so now there's a shortage of dollars. And the numbers I've been reading um, are like there were $9 trillion of loans taken out, denominated in, in U.S. dollars. Now all those loans you know, need to be rolled over or paid back. And so everybody's got to scramble for dollars. And now that the Fed's not printing anymore, um, then, wow, there's a shortage of dollars. And that's one explanation for why the dollar's gone up like 17% in the last eight months. And, you know, those, those moves are huge in, in currencies, you know, because um, everybody, you know, everybody with that money either lost or gained 17%. And, you know, those of us that use the dollar every day and because it's, we live in the U.S. or if we live in Ecuador, which uses the U.S. dollar as their official currency, you know, we, we don't necessarily see that 17%. But we, we definitely are seeing that imports uh, from other places are, are dropping in value, you know, because the dollar's gotten stronger. And for people that lost 17% on the other end of that trade, they're, they're, everything that comes out of America is, is going to be more expensive for them. And, and, and because oil's priced in dollars, then, you know, there you go. You're getting a lot less dollars for your, for your oil that you sell. Uh, that's all. That's really complicated. I don't know if I no, no. That did that. That, not, that, that made a but, ton of sense. I mean, I really appreciate you breaking that down. That made a lot of sense for me because I know a lot of people. I think um, me included. I was like, why is the Fed giving all this money to other countries? Why are they putting all this money in other countries? But and then it's like, okay, so but now that the dollar's actually gone up in price, they're calling back these loans. You know it. It kind of is scarier for those other countries because it's it's kind of it is kind of like financial terrorism. Like we're going to give you a bunch of money, no problem. Okay, give it right back right now. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a gangster move to do in a way. Like, uh, you know, like a hard money loan that you made with some mafioso guy, and he's like, "All right, I'm going to start breaking your legs." <laughs> yeah, and a, and a, it's um, I guess it it just depends on what's going up or down uh, because the euro. Uh, a lot of people, I guess, in Eastern European countries like Romania and Hungary, they they took their home mortgages denominated in euros because at that time the interest rate on the euro uh, was was less than their their home currency or something, and so when the euros shot up in value, then suddenly they were really getting squeezed because they, they needed much more of their local currency to, to pay their mortgage. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it doesn't, it's not just the dollar that can end up being the, the gangster move. Any, any currency which strengthens a lot oh, yeah. that, that people have borrowed in, then, then, then that really squeezes them. And so, um, it, it's it's interesting because it's kind of like a 3D chess game or something, you know, because each currency, you know, it's like, well, how do we measure what's going on in each currency? And you, you can always refer back to gold, right? Like how much is gold in that currency? And that's kind of like the baseline that, that allows us to see, you know, because it's kind of confusing. You go, well, wait a minute, how much is the yen worth or um, in, in, in Chinese yuan or what's it worth in euros? And, you know, it's confusing. And so you can always go, well, what's it, how many ounces of gold, you know, can, can this currency buy? You know, then that allows us to set a baseline of what the value is. But in day-to-day -day, day -day living, we're we're trading for stuff in the world in in our regular currencies, not in gold. And so, like you said, Canada has suffered a, a huge devaluation versus the dollar because they um, they've been uh, they're very dependent on their their energy exports, you know. And um, that and and as a good example of why it matters, what happens to currencies, it a lot of people feel the Canadian housing bubble is about to burst as a result. Yeah, no, that that's probably going to. So speaking of bursted bubbles, um, you know, looking at the euro and, you know, looking at the price of that versus the dollar, look at the Canadian dollar versus the dollar. Now, the dollar is looking really strong right now because it's it's never been 
Every time I went to Europe, it was like sometimes it was a dollar eighty to the euro to a dollar fifty to the euro. Now it's like at an all time low. So let's just say hypothetically, um, Greece does back out of the euro, uh, and you know what kind of effect? It's it's definitely going to probably devalue the currency of the euro. But like in the future, we've we've talked before. I mean, U.S. economy has a couple bubbles going right now. I mean, there's definitely the automotive echo bubble, which uh, you had a really good post about that now. I mean, everybody, and actually there was a really good uh, podcast with you and Gordon T. Long a few months back in the fall talking about uh, how everybody's getting approved for auto loans right now. People that have no business getting nice luxury cars are getting approved for nice luxury cars. And it's kind of, you know, it is scary for me. Uh, My dad just recently retired from uh, you know, the automotive industry. And it's, it's always like, you know, I, I remember how scary it was when, um, you know, he, he worked for a subsidiary of Chrysler and how scary it was when, when Chrysler went through that before. And so in the, like, I think about what, what kind of effect is this going to have as, on his retirement once this bubble bursts. And then there's the, the new echo housing bubble. Cause I mean, the housing pr- values are going up and, and that's probably going to burst as well. So when all these bubbles burst, what is gonna what's what's gonna be going on with the with with these currencies? Like, how is that gonna affect all these currencies? Yeah, and it's a it's an excellent question, Drew. Because um, let's face it, these bubbles you mention are global. And uh, you know, I mean, the maybe the the auto sales bubble is particularly uh, big in in the U.S., but housing is like a bubble everywhere. I mean, Denmark, the housing's absurd. Uh, China, housing is ridiculous. I mean, every place that has access to credit has has created a housing bubble. And so the, the it's a global bubble that's bursting. So in a way, it's almost like we can set the bubble bursting aside because all the currencies are going to get hammered with the same um, sort of whatever you want to call it, um, credit deflation, um, recession, you know, whatever. Um, you know, if people are going to have fewer jobs, f- less income, um, more loans will default, um, you know, all, all those impacts. But in a way, since everybody will be suffering the same thing, <laughs> then uh, we can almost take it out of the equation, you know? Um, so what I, what I think about Greece is what the Eurozone did was they wanted to simplify the European economy, right? So that um, uh, somebody selling stuff in, in Greece could then not have to have the, the expense of, of, trans- of transferring their money into other currencies, right? And then a, a Greek person could go to work in, in Scandinavia or Germany without a bunch of, you know, passport stuff, right? Um, no immigration issues. And so that made perfect sense, right? I mean, kind of like the way the U.S., is all of our states, you know, anybody can go to another state and get a job. I mean, it's, we take it for granted, but in, in, um, balkanized places with a bunch of countries, then it it used to be an issue. So that makes perfect sense in terms of just efficiency and and making the economy easier for the the participants. Right. But what the, what they did that, that, that they didn't really understand the consequences of by slapping one currency on all these different countries, they took away the market's um, ability to price um, differences in productivity and differences in culture. Um, all kinds of things got um, smashed together, if you will, in the euro. And so that's where the whole problem with Greece and, and the other countries comes from is you can't price um, the Greek economy, the same as the German economy, you know, because yeah. of, um, there's more corruption in, in Greece, you know, it's less productive per worker. Um, it has a different mix of, of exports and imports. And so what it did was it, it, it basically gave the Greeks, um, the way I put it is this, it gave the Greeks their rich brother's credit card. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so what do you do when, you know, your rich brother, you get his credit card. Wow. The, the, there's like the credit limit is insanely high. The interest rate's low. <laughs> hey, max that sucker out. Right. Yeah. And why not? You know, it's like, and so that's what the Euro did. And so when, so there's no way to, to give every country the credit card that they deserve, if you will, that's, a, <laughs> that's set by the market. Like this is what your productive 
labor is worth in the real world. This is what your um, this is the tax for your high level of corruption, you know, and and so you need individual currencies for, uh, to um, to let the market find the right level, and so um, that's why the euro, in my projection, and and a lot of other people too, it's probably only worth fifty cents. In other words, it used to be, as you said, a, 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 it took a dollar sixty to buy one euro at the, at its height. Now it's like it takes a dollar fifteen. Well, a, a lot of us think it's really worth about fifty cents, <laughs> wow. and so it, it could become a lot cheaper to travel in in Europe for at least for those countries that that would retain the euro, and and so that's where a lot of people are um, uh, kind of feeling that it comes down to this: as soon as Greece leaves the euro, then that will raise questions in Spain and Italy. As why are we having to suffer the consequences like you know decades of austerity, um, paying all these these debts that we acquired, um, and and to stay in the euro? What's the value to us? And so, then if those countries leave, then what's what's left for the euro? And what's left for the euro would be maybe France, Germany, and and um, the Netherlands. Um, and those are all you know strong export economies, although France is weakening. And so um, the whole thing would basically come apart, and everyone because everyone would go, "What's the value of keeping it?" And so, in all of that turmoil of repricing, the dollar could um, start looking very safe and stable, which means there'd be higher demand for it. So that's why I think the dollar could go up another fifty percent against other currencies. You know, it's just um, we have all the same problems uh, other countries have, plus some of our own, but. It all comes down to supply and demand for the currency. And if there's more demand than there is supply, then that the value of that currency in the open market is going to keep going up. Yeah, I was excited to see that the price of Bitcoin is becoming a lot more affordable to buy with the dollar going up. Because I think the dollar, I, I don't know, like, you know, you talked about, you know, it's not really bad just to have cash in hand. Like a lot of people... We're saying, you know, oh, the dollar, get get rid of that, you know, but it's, you know, I think it's it's good to have a diversity in where your money is. So, you know, cash, uh, whether it's in, you know, Bitcoin or anything else. Um, so so like kind of shifting gears, you know, we talked about these bubbles and, you know, we always like to to leave things on the positive note when we talk. Um, so for the individual, um in the U.S., you know, what are some things that, or even any other country that's listening, like, so some things, you know, we talk about how this housing bubble keeps going on, and it's a really interesting thing, and then when you were talking about that, I immediately thought of the tiny house movement, and how, like, that is a way to kind of combat that, and it's a way to, you know, to realize, you know, you don't need all this stuff, I mean, you've written some good posts about minimalism, and, you know, what stuff you don't need. Like, you know, I have personally, like I'm about to move again and I, you know, there's just some things that, you know, I like to keep my resources, but there's some things that I should probably either sell or donate or give away to somebody that I care about that could use it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, this need of, of stuff and, 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 and how that's like kind of been positioned to, to, to be a driving force in our economy um, through marketing and other things, um, it's it's interesting how you know houses are, have always been one of those things. I want a big, I want a big house. Like some family members of mine just bought humongous houses that they don't need, and it's just like it's funny to me because I'm like, man, I'm I'm sorry to say you think your this house is going to go up in value, but when that bubble bursts, it's it's probably going to you know it's probably going to shatter your dreams there a little bit. And it's, and it's, it's like, it's, it's interesting to see. And like, you know, for me personally, like I'm like, you know, just, we were talking before I just went up to California and I'm like, man, this place is beautiful. I should move out here. And then I'm thinking, okay, let's and I'm And I, and I started like subscribing to this tiny house blog and uh, it's really good. They send you all these different kinds of houses. And I'm like, you know, a tiny house or even an earth ship, um, you know, sustainability of your home. I mean, if you look at your life like a business, like let's get my expenses as little as down as little as possible. And that's the best way. If you're, if you have a time of high income, take advantage of it and save that money 
or, you know, put it somewhere that that it's going to be safe. Um, but a lot of times we don't do that. A lot of times we go out of our way to buy more stuff. So, you know, we were talking about, you know, the uh, the the economy and, uh, you know, now when economies are really in full flex, you know, what they always do is it's like they always instead of like, oh, things are good now. I'm just going to try to build this at the same time. And a lot of businesses don't really focus their growth on sustainability. It's more of um, let's just grow as fast as possible. And it's in, in it's not always thought out if, if all that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right to think of, of your house as a business. And that, that I think is, is my suggestion to anybody in looking at the housing market as something whether they they want to buy or sell or or rent or move, you know, it's like okay, every house is has a rental value in that economy wherever it is, right? And so if you were lucky enough to have a a Victorian, you know, somebody gave you a Victorian in San Francisco, I mean, you can rent that house for I don't know six, eight thousand, ten thousand a month, you know, That's if you crazy. rent out each room, right? <laughs> yeah. So that if we kind of use like multiples, you know, like we go, okay, um, what's the value of the business? And, and you can take a multiple of its, of its profit. Right. And so say and it, it, in the same way of valuing a stock or anything else, if we say a stock, you know, earns a dollar of, of dividends every year, then, um, if we say the PE is 16 then um, the price to earnings ratio, then that, that stock is valued at $16 per share, you know, and the same goes with housing. So if you can, um, rent like a bedroom in your house for like 300 bucks, then you go, there's three bedrooms. Okay. So maybe you could rent your, your house for 900 to a thousand bucks. That's the maximum value. So you go, well, um, what's that house worth? Well, it's not worth a million dollars if it only generates a thousand bucks. Right. Um, and then because after expenses, maybe the net is a few hundred dollars. So, that's where people get in trouble. They value the house not as a business, but um, based on, as you say, a bubble economy where the the value seems to be soaring way above its business value. And um, so uh, that's why the small house uh, or tiny house movement kind of brings it all back down to what's a house really worth, you know. And and as a business, if you can if you can lower your costs by living in a 500 square foot house on a on a a rural lot that you own free and clear and with very low property taxes, then you're going to, um, you're going to benefit from this old cliche in business and real estate, which is you make money when you buy, not when you sell. <laughs> and and um, what the meaning of that is, if you buy really low in price, then you're going to be making money on that, you know, going forward, you know, whereas if you overpay and you're burdened with a huge debt, you're never going to make any money because all you're going to be doing is servicing your debt. And so places like, you know, that are in high demand, like, you know, uh, Manhattan, right, in New York City, well, you know, no one can afford that. So now Brooklyn is um, apparently got a housing bubble, you know. Yeah. Um, and in the Bay Area, you know, San Francisco is like ridiculous. And so then that's jacked up prices in Palo Alto and, and San Jose and um, the East Bay where I live and most of the year. And so it's crazy. It's, it's, um, it, it doesn't make sense to buy a house here, you know, frankly, as a business. But if you're like a young person who just moved here, then renting is ridiculous too. I mean, like I just read that they are building some new um, apartment buildings in in San Francisco, right downtown and Market Street. They want like three thousand seven hundred bucks a month for a one bedroom apartment. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you think insane. you can rent for thirty seven hundred bucks in Ohio? Oh man, I could rent. A whole building. Oh, yeah. I could rent a whole building. Yeah, I really could. I could rent like a, a warehouse and I could probably put in an apartment and I could, man, I could rent more than a warehouse. I could, I mean, $3,000 a month. I could, I mean, I could rent a ton in Ohio. I mean, and it, and it goes back to something we were talking about before. Like, you know, young people think that they need to move to these big markets so they can make money, but they don't think about my cost of living here is ridiculous. So even if I'm making a hundred thousand dollars a year, in reality, I'm making about the equivalent of twenty-two thousand in in Ohio, based on the cost of living and everything like that. So I think, like for me, you know, I f I feel pretty good because I have a pretty good paying job. 
Um, and I, my cost of living is really low. I mean, I really have, have cut it down. I, I only, you know, the place I live now is a friend's place and the place I'm moving to is a friend's place. No lease. We have an understanding. We have a gentleman's agreement and, uh, and you know, I'm going to move now to it's, it's not the best neighborhood, but you know, and at the same time, you know, I want to grow a garden in my backyard. I want to, you know, I want to do a lot of stuff. And, and I think, you know, if, if I'm putting in energy in my yard and, and people see me growing food, you know, there's a lot of stuff about urban farming and everything like that and how that changes your neighborhood. So I think, you know, I think it's just being proactive. I think, uh, you know, you have to look at things through a different lens, especially if, you, if you're a young person like me um, or younger, like, you know, don't just because you're going to New York City doesn't mean anything. Like it's it's so funny the way people think like, oh, well, I'm here, so I'm, I must be better than anybody from back home. And it's like, well, maybe, yeah, you're getting some different experience, but let's really look at, you know, let's really look at um, the financials of what's what your situation is. Like if you're making so much money and it costs you so much money, you don't have that much operating costs. I mean, if your operating costs to live there is so high then, you know, what are you really saving? What are you really taking away? And, and I think like, not even just like you were saying, looking at a home as a business, but just look at your life as a business. Like, you know, somebody I was talking to before, um, one of my, my friend's dad was, uh, you know, he, he was like a, a state trooper and then he hated it because he's, uh, he hates police now. It's actually kind of funny. He's more of an anarchist (laughs) and, uh, he, uh, but he had this business and he always wanted these toys, but like, so he bought a helicopter, but he's like, well, I'm not just going to buy a helicopter just to have it. Like, I need to find a way to have it pay for itself. And I think if we do that with every everything that we like to do, I think that more, more and more people would see more and more freedom in their everyday life. If, you know, and I think that's why like opportunities like, you know, we've talked about before, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, there's a new one um, that uh, the Netherlands is about to launch where it's like, if you have old stuff, but it's actually worth, worth, like it's actually useful. Like, let's say you, you used to be in construction, you own tools. Well, guess what? You can actually on this new, I think they're actually bringing it to the Bay area soon. So it's in the Netherlands now, but it's a whole share economy thing. And it's basically just letting people rent your stuff. So I think, you know, if you can, if you can generate revenue from from everything you I, I i think it's that's just the way you have to look at it like i think you know you don't people can't continue to just look at i'm gonna go to my job and be in in cubicle jail for nine hours or for 50 hours of the week where they give me an hour so i can go eat my food and go to the bathroom and all that stuff but i really have it going on because they pay me a hundred thousand dollars a year it's like I don't really think you have it going on. Like, I don't like that life. There's not a lot of freedom in that life. However, if you're using that as a tool to generate capital and you have a plan and you have some light at the end of your tunnel, then yeah, then then, then use that job to live the life you actually want to live. But I think, it, you know, it's it's easy to get for people to get sucked into like this consumerism economy and to really you know, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm living the American dream. I just bought a house. I have a wife and kid. I have this good job. Okay. The economy changes. Your job went away. Now, what do you have? You have a house you can't afford. You have a child that has needs that, I mean, that's probably a mouth you can't afford. So, I mean, it's, 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 I think people need to, to just take, like, look, put their life under a different lens. And I think it's, it's, it's it's beneficial for them to to start thinking things out of out of the box and differently. Man, I went on a rant there, Charles. Sorry about that, bud. <laughs> no, no. no, I totally agree. And um, really, what we're the value of what we're trying to do, you know, in your podcast and and on 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 my blog, and a lot of other people share the same value. Is the what we're trying to do is make people um, give people ideas to look at things from another perspective and not just um, swallow, you know, without any examination, these, yeah. uh, these assumptions. And, um, and housing is a good topic. I, 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 we, can, we can go on, maybe do another show just about that because, of course, it's the, it's the major expense for yeah. many people. And so if you come up with a solution that totally blows away your housing costs, you're like, you, you have such a huge advantage over everybody that's got like a $3,000 a month mortgage. 
And, so that, and yeah, the t- tiny house thing, great tiny, idea. Tiny houses, um, Airbnb is a great idea. There was, you know, where I, we were just talking about, I just went and I stayed in Midtown Sacramento and it was beautiful. It was $89 a month or a, a night. It was cheaper than um, a hotel and it was in, in Midtown and I could walk anywhere any, for anything I needed to do. Parking stunk there. I, I did wish that there was better instructions for parking, but they had these two-hour limits that they didn't really seem to enforce as long as they weren't cleaning the street that day. So that wasn't too bad. But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, these there's the nice thing is, is that like this whole share economy is really, you know, even if like, let's say you want to have a nice car, Uber has different options now for you. And, and if you can drive enough Uber in a month to make that car payment and not spend too much of your time, I mean, that's not a bad idea. I think that the, the good thing is, is that like, you know, we, it's easy to think that there's there's uh, gloom and doom and everything like that. But in reality, there's a lot of good opportunities that are coming out because there's there's needs to be met. Just like what you said, housing is such a big cost and we really could do a, a whole podcast on that. And um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I just you know, I, I we just can't emphasize enough, like, you know, be creative with your everyday life. Like, I mean, don't. Don't think you have to live in a box and actually believe in yourself. And and if you try to do something and you fail, who cares? I mean, like in reality, you're going to learn so much by putting yourself out there and, and and taking a risk. I mean, don't risk everything, but like, you know, like try to try to make get make get yourself to be a little bit uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in, uh, as a kind of closing thought, what, what we're also talking about is don't go chase the dream that's already created yeah. that other people have chased and made it into a bubble. In other words, yeah, I would love it if somebody gave me like a month um, a free rent in Manhattan or or San Francisco would be great. But if you if you if you have to go there and earn enough money to to pay bubble prices, maybe the opportunity isn't on the left and right coasts anymore. Maybe it's in everything in between where you know, the, the smaller cities that have um, potential and resources that are just so much cheaper, you know? Yeah. And, and so, um, and yet there's enough people there, there's enough young people there, that's important. <laughs> that <laughs> enough Because, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, all the things we're talking about require a youthful populace, I think. Um, the, and there's vibrancy where people are willing to, to take chances and, um, and will support each other's businesses. There's a lot of towns like that. And so um, we looking ahead on the next 20 years, that's probably the opportunity in the U.S., not, not the overbuilt bubble places like San Francisco and, and New York City. I mean, they'll always be um, have their attractions and stuff, but if you can't afford to live there, then um, why beat your brains out? Yeah. Trying to, trying to do the impossible. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, something that there's a really good episode you did with a guy who I've actually I've actually recorded with the guy that took over his podcast, Chris Stefanik. But uh, it was an old episode of Two Beers with Steve. And, oh, uh, yeah. And man, did that still apply today? And, that, and like, I'll look at that guy's feed and I'm like, man, I'm like on the path of him that he's on, but five years behind him. But like looking at like something you guys had talked about was farmers markets. And I think, you know, try, I mean, it, you know, something I'm really happy about living in Columbus is there's a farmers market in pretty much every suburb. And during the summer, you can go to a different farmers market every day and they're all pretty good farmers markets. And I think, you know, it, you know, giving back to your community like a farmers market or trying to support local businesses is so key. So and I think that another interesting thing, too, is, you know, you might not have enough product to put in a storefront, but going back to Farmer X, which was something we talked about a while ago, you know, something that Japanese are doing, um, part-time job there and a part-time farmer. I mean, I think realistically, you know, people need to, to have a part-time business. I mean, put a part-time business, there's light at the end of the tunnel. So whether it is you you make your own nut butters, you make your own handmade soap, you you, you raise chickens in your backyard or whatever it is. I mean, like, you know, put some, I guess it's like, you know, you know, put, uh, plant some seed and pour some water on it and see what happens. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and it's, it's amazing what the, you know, what the U S and, you know, we don't have a, a, a patent on innovation, but the U S is 
is different in the world in that it, it, uh, the, the ideology here is any, anybody can come up with an idea and, and see it through. And a lot of other nations don't have that idea. You, you, know, you have to be part of some elite or something to go out and, and uh, try some new idea. So I'll, I'll, I'll mention this one idea, which I thought was kind of interesting, which was it's called uh, Spin Lister. Uh, spin, like S-P-I-N. It's a bike rental thing where if you, like me, I happen to own like a half dozen bikes. They're all old. Some of them were abandoned. Um, some of them I bought used. But this business is somebody comes to your town, they want to rent a bike. Well, it's kind of like Uber, um, but, you know, you just rent, um, you rent them your bike for five bucks a day. And you go, well, what's that's that five bucks? Come on, you know. But, I mean, if you had a half dozen bikes and um, you were in a bikeable community, then you know, it's a little income stream. And if, you, if you're a bicyclist, um, then you want to make it easy for people to, to, to bicycle. And, um, and so you'd be helping them, right, by giving them a bike for a few bucks. And then they, um, they don't have to deal with renting a car and all that. And um, it's just a, one example of many of, of like the potential. Yeah. Then there's a lot of business, actually, something that you said. I watched a TEDx and I'll find it and I'll send it to you. But it was about... Uh, this couple that had, I think they were in Washington, and they started like a business, like a little restaurant, only, and it was off of a bike path, and it was only for bicyclists. And uh, and so I think, you know, you know, people, if you get bike path, I mean, there, so I mean, so not only does that branch one line of business, but then there's another, and you can kind of keep going and perpetuating or perpetuating this economy off other people's ideas and trying to cater the needs. Okay, so we have this. Okay, so we we could also use this, and it's 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 pretty interesting. So um, uh, I'll I'll have to send that to you, Charles. I'll find that. I, and I send would it to I you. would love that. I would that would <laughs> yeah. be so awesome to take a bicycle ride along a path, and then there's a little cafe or something. Only, yeah. only for us bicyclists. I mean, um, great idea. And I, if I had to summarize what we're talking about, one way of saying it is we're we're talking about bringing idle assets into productivity. Yes. You know, in other words, a bunch of bikes are sitting there um, unused. Well, then get them into use and then there's an income stream. Your car sits in the garage like 95% of the time. Bring it out and, and, and um, you know, for another 10%, bring it into productivity and then you got a little income stream. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the, the basic idea. We have so many things that are sitting around idle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and one last question, and then I'm going to let you go. Uh, what bike actually gets rented the most? Is it the vintage bikes? I feel like people want to be cool and, and try out those vintage bikes, especially if it's a hipster. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I haven't visited that site. I don't know if that data, um, if, if the site aggregates that data, but it would be very interesting to see what, whether it's um, sort of the, the new style of bikes that are, that are highly in demand or... Um, and I, 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 I bet you you're right. It's probably the vintage bikes. Yeah, people want to be cool on their vintage bikes. The young people want to pull from the older generation and be <laughs> bring that hipness back. Uh, well, anyways, everybody, thanks for listening. Please, 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 please go to of2minds.com. Read Charles's blog. It's beneficial to you. It's been beneficial to me. I've been reading it for almost a year now, and it's it's helped me. It's helped me, I, I think, be more creative just with the ideas that Charles tries to spurn in your head. And he does a great job of it. Follow Charles on Twitter. So go to Twitter. If you're on Twitter, it is C.H. Smith and the I in Smith is a one. Um, check that out. Uh, buy his book. So we I didn't promote it at all through the podcast. I'm disappointed with that. But get a job. Build a real, build a real career. Defy a bewildering economy. Great book. He has other great books as well. And they're not a sponsor, but if you get Kindle Unlimited, Charles, some of Charles's books you can actually rent and read for free. So other books to check it out on Kindle as well. I would recommend buying the hardcovers as well. Support Charles. Um, anyways, Charles, anything else you want to promote before we go? Nope, that's, that's it. Thank you so much, Drew. Really, really enjoyed our conversation as always. That meet me as well. Thank you, sir. Oh, man, oh, man.